Well, it's the um, crazy month of May, and um, I'm just reflecting on my day yesterday, and the day went from pretty much sun up until way past sundown of busyness and activity. And I was uh, commenting on this, and Heather said, this might have been the busiest Saturday you've ever had. It started with the Young Life race early in the morning at the dog track. I couldn't even run that because I had to be dressed up to go to a piano recital right after it, which had a lunch as part of that. And right from that, we went to a soccer game, which was an important game, so we had to get there early and ran a little bit over. And, and then after that, there was, there was a conflict of three different things that were overlapped. And I had to pick a ministry event or two different parties. And I went to the neighborhood party because a year ago, I didn't go. And he said, all right, mark your calendar today for next year's Kentucky Derby. I want you at this party. So a year ago, my day was already obligated. And it was just that crazy. And I suspect the same is true of some of you, many of you, in fact, that that's just the season we're in right now. And here's the question I'm asking myself after reading that passage and reflecting on it all week. I'm busy, but am I fruitful? I am busy, but am I fruitful? Imagine this image for a second, which we've all lived in. You're late for something, and you can't find something. You're flying around your house, let's say it's your sunglasses, and you're digging everywhere, and you're kind of frantically running around, room to room to room, looking, turning things over, and finally you go, I'm just too late, and you have to leave without it. I think that's a picture for many people in this world of the entire, their entire life. Their life is spent frantically scrambling for something that they can't find, and then they run out of time, and they never find it and have to go without that's a, that's a picture of frenetic activity at its worst, just craziness. One of the things I really like about the Bible is that on certain topics, it's incredibly balanced. And if you were to go one way too far, you'd be in trouble, or the other way you'd be in trouble. And I want to give you two examples on this particular topic of just activity and busyness. <clears throat> I really like Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6, 6 says this, go to the ant you sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So right there, Scripture denounces being lazy but then over here in Exodus 20, this you're probably more familiar with, it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So here we kind of get a picture of, appropriately so, the scripture says, don't be slothful, don't be lazy, and it also says, rest, don't overwork, don't overfunction. And it gives us this kind of picture of a balance. But in our culture, I don't think those two errors are evenly assessed. It is completely acceptable to overfunction. And it's seen with pride. It is seen with pride to be a Sabbath breaker, to not to not rest, to work, 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 and keep working and working and working and never slow down. But it's not acceptable to be seen as lazy. You know, we find ourselves making excuses if we take a morning off. 
You know, somebody says to you, hey, Saturday afternoon, what'd you do this morning? And you go, well, I stayed in bed till 10.30, and then I read the paper. I've been in my pajamas until 1 o'clock, and we're kind of looking down and going, but I was really busy. And we make some justifying excuse for rest. We have to say, oh, but I was really busy this week, and don't, don't think of me as lazy. We're terrified as a culture of being thought of as actually being lazy. And so we don't even make concessions for resting. We, we feel like we have to excuse it. And how about the other side of it? You know, when somebody calls you up to make an appointment, you know, you like to feel important, and they're like, hey, can I meet with you on, on, on uh, Friday? And you go, hang on a sec. Well, let's see, Monday, I've got this with this thing, and then Tuesday, and, oh, and then, and, then, and we kind of, we go through our busyness almost like a badge of honor and say, yeah, I think I could fit you in on Friday. And what we're communicating is, look how important I am. I've got so much activity. I'm really important. You're important too. I can fit you in on Friday, though. And, and you see that's in the culture. But the minute it's like, you know, I've really set aside this whole week to rest. I'm not having any meetings. And then we feel like we have to explain why. That, that'd be weird to do that in this culture. We apologize for resting, and we take pride in breaking the Sabbath. I have a friend who's a pastor in Colorado, and he managed to write a grant request to the Lilly Endowment. There's a Lilly grant out there of $70 million for pastoral excellence I'm trying to figure out how I can write a grant and get one of these. But he actually got the Lilly, the Lilly Fund to give him $50,000 to take his family, he has four or five kids, to take all of his family for four months to Costa Rica and Honduras. He did surfing, he did kayaking, he did some immersion language learning, and basically his angle was, my church is growing, my pace of life has picked up so much I'm out of control, and there's a bunch of Hispanic people in our community. I want to learn Spanish, and I want to recalibrate. I'm going to go to these places where they actually understand what a siesta is, and I'm going to rest. I'm going to learn to slow down. They gave him $50,000 to do this. He took four months off. Now, that is a real investment in that church, in that pastor. I like that. He needed to rest, and our culture just doesn't even get that. And so he came back energized and renewed. It was a good thing. Now, as I was thinking about this frenetic activity, I came up with four reasons why I think we live this way. One is, we simply don't trust God's provision. Do you realize that by design, you are supposed to sleep away one-third of your life? By design. I mean, everybody that's done these sleep studies, they all say the same thing. The average American adult needs between seven and nine hours of sleep a night, and it declines by like one hour once you get into the older adult years. So let's say on average, eight hours of sleep. Think back to the last seven days. How many hours of sleep on average did you get? If God has designed you to need eight, why is it you only got five or six? Now, could it be that you're trying to squeeze more out of your life than God intended? That you're not satisfied with his provision? He says you get two-thirds of your day for activity and one-third for sleep. But we're not happy with that. We want more. I'll just drink a little caffeine, and I can get a little more work done, and I can be a little bit more productive, and we start burning the candle, as they say, at both ends. We don't simply trust God's provision. Do you know that more, I read a statistic, that more accidents, car accidents, happen from drowsiness than from drunkenness? People are asleep at the wheel, literally, and that's, that's a problem. Second reason, not only we don't trust God's provision, but we're trying to prove ourselves to others and to God. Look at how hard I work. I'm trying to earn my keep. I'm trying to do it really well. I'm working so hard. Look at me, God. Look how busy and zealous I've been for you. Sometimes even in ministry, 
We're active so that we'll be approved. We're working for something like approval. We want to be seen as important and valid and valuable. And so we do list our stuff when we go to make an appointment. A third thing is simply everybody else is doing it. Everybody else is running so busy, we feel like I have to have my kids doing all the same stuff, and I have to be involved in all these extracurriculars, and, uh, and, and the pace just quickens, and we don't realize it. That's why my friend had to leave the country to get a different perspective. Everybody else is so busy, we just get caught up in it. And there's a fourth one I thought of. I'm afraid of what might happen if I slow down and get quiet. I'm afraid spiritually of what might happen if I actually get quiet enough to listen to God. And so if I just stay busy, and it can be busyness of mind as well. It doesn't always have to be a physical activity, but it can be letting your mind jump from thing to thing, and you're always thinking about something to keep you occupied. These reasons, and maybe a couple others, are why we're so busy as a culture, I think. Now, in this sermon series, we're looking at resurrection life. We're in the Easter season, and we are reminded every Sunday that Christ is risen. He is alive. And because he conquered death and rose from the grave, some things are different. In fact, he answers all four of those things that I just just named. Think about this. I don't trust God's provision, so I'm trying to squeeze more out of this life than he's given me. However, because he's alive and resurrected, those who believe in him this is not the end of their life. This is merely the beginning of an eternal thing. And the scriptures say that that no mind can even conceive the good things God has planned for us. So if you decide one Saturday when it's beautiful, that instead of filling it with activity, you're just going to kind of slow down a bit and skip that day and be with the Lord, you think you're going to miss out on an eternal scale? Because he's alive, he'll give you 100,000 times more. 10,000 more reasons. I mean, there's just so much more abundance in his hands. And Dan talked about that a couple of weeks ago. There was so much more for us. We don't have to feel like this is it. This is my one shot. I've got to squeeze everything out of this life or it's gone. The second reason um, is that idea of proving myself or earning something. You know, when Jesus died on that cross, one of his last words, his last phrase, it is finished. He did the work for us. We were supposed to take that cross. He took it for us. He said, it is finished. The work is done. So now we come as people already approved in Christ. If you know the Lord, you are seen as righteous in his eyes because of what Christ has done. He's already accepted you. All the work has been done on your your behalf. Now you're simply responding in gratitude. You don't have to earn it or seek his approval in any way. He loves you because he loves Christ and you're in Christ. It's that simple. So we don't have to worry about earning something. And then the other one, everybody else is doing it. Do you know, for the first few centuries of Christianity, they didn't call it Christianity. They referred to it as the way, or at least, let's say, for the first few decades. They just called it the way because it looked so different than how the rest of the world lived that it became known as this alternate way of living. Jesus gives us a new way to be human. He gives us a new pattern for living. So I look to Christ. I look to the scriptures. I look to what the church is doing, and I don't have to look at what all my neighbors are doing. I'm not trying to keep up with the Joneses, with apologies to the Joneses that are actually in here. I don't have to do that. I can go with this new way. Now, I'm going to say a little bit more about that afraid of what might happen if I slow down one in a minute, but let's take a look at this passage. Turn in your Bible to John 15, and I want to make a couple of points from the text. 
This text is right in the middle of, if you have, the Pew Bibles have black letters, but mine, mine, wherever Jesus is speaking, is red, and these pages are all red. So John chapter 13, all the way through 17, is all Jesus speaking. And he's in the upper room on the night before he dies, and he's giving this great teaching, and then the end of chapter 14, he says, rise, let us go from here. So they get up, and they start walking out toward the Garden of Gethsemane, and I imagine he sees a vineyard. And like any great teacher would do, he's got an object lesson right there. And he says this, I am the true vine. John 15, 1, I am the true vine. Or it would come out more like this, I, I am the true vine. And in that, he is making a claim to divinity. This is the seventh of the famous seven I am statements of John's gospel. If you want to look up what the other ones are, just Google I am statements in John. You'll get a list of all seven and which scripture verses they are. They are direct references to divinity. He is claiming to be God when he says this, and everybody knew it. That's why they put him on the cross, for blasphemy. Remember when Moses asked God what his name was? He said, I, I am. Just the the verb for being is his name. It's Yahweh in Hebrew. And so in Greek, if you want to say I am, you say the word ami, which includes the pronoun I in it. Ami in Greek means I am. But what he says is ego ami. Ego is the pronoun I. I, I am. So he says, I am God. That's what he says here. I am the true vine. And so in doing so, he is starting to fulfill something. The Old Testament talked about the people of God as being a vine or a vineyard. But almost every reference to that talked about sour grapes or uh, fruitlessness or unfaithful people. And he's saying, I am actually the true vine. I am the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament motif of being the people of God. I am the true vine. And he said, I'm the vine and you are the branches. So he's now talking to his disciples. The other six I am statements are more like invitations. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's an invitation to come to the Father through Christ. Here he's saying, if you are a branch, you are in me, and I am the vine. And instead of an invitation, it's a description of abiding. It's a a description of having your source in him. What's different about Jesus is his life is not derived. He has life in himself. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. He has life in himself, and a branch only has life as long as it's connected to him. So what he's saying is, he doesn't really mix his words at all. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And he gives us an option. You remain in the vine, and you can be pruned by the the gardener, the vine dresser, or you don't bear fruit, and eventually you're not in the vine, and you wither and die and are only worthy to be burned as kindling wood. Those are the options. Remain in the vine and bear fruit and be pruned, or don't be in the vine and be burned. He gives those two options. So he's encouraging us to stay connected to him for the source of life. Now, two questions emerge in this, because this is really an allegory. Each part of this has a role. You know, the vine is Jesus, the branches are his disciples, the vine dresser is the father, but it talks about fruit, and it talks about abiding. How do we abide, and what is the fruit? Now, if you're like me, a little more analytical, a little more engineer type, you like fruit that can be counted, right? So I think, well, what is the fruit? Okay. Well, Jesus told a parable one time about a sower who went out to sow seed, and he threw seed down, and it hit the good soil, and said it produced 30, 60, and 100-fold times. So this one seed produced 100 more seeds. You could think, well, the fruit is evangelism. 
I go out and I tell people about faith, they come to trust Jesus, and they become a Christian. Now I've multiplied one. I've, I have one fruit, and then we think fruit like that. Or, if you know your Bible, you think Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, which actually we have engraved around our baptismal font. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, the nine fruit of the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, it's singular, the fruit. It's one thing. If you have the Holy Spirit, this fruit begins to be manifested in your life. So is that what he's talking about here? Well, those things are both certainly fruits. However, they seem even a little bit removed from what this text is talking about. Look down at the bottom in verse 7 and 8. He says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And then he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So it would seem when he's talking about the fruit, he's talking about love. He's talking about growing in your love for God and having God's love in you. In other words, sharing in the divine life where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have eternally existed in mutual love. And he's saying, come, be part of this love of God. Of course, the other fruits then will come out of that. If I am loving God and his love is in me, I will begin to tell people about him and they will come to faith. I will begin to see the spirit bringing out character reformation in my life. It will begin to change me. These other things will happen for sure, but it's really about abiding in Christ so that his love will grow. So here's a question you could ask. Is all of my activity and my busyness helping me love God more? Am I seeing more of the love of God in my life because of whatever activity I've done? Just think about your day yesterday. Did those opportunities, those things you do, did those provide opportunities for you to love God more? Or did they distract you? Did they pull you away from abiding? Are you like the branch that is not bearing fruit? Now, the other part of this is that if you start to have fruit in your life, if you're growing in your love for God, he will prune you in some way so that you'll bear more fruit. And that's part of that fear of, if I get quiet, what's going to happen? What might God say to me if I actually have a day of no activity? I'm not trying to read some book to keep my mind occupied. I'm not doing some chore around the house. I'm actually being still before the Lord and praying and inviting him to speak to me. What would come up? What would it be like? You know, as a pastor, I often get to go and visit people in the hospital. And um, there's a common occurrence in the hospital where people who are really busy have an accident or get sick, and then they spend a couple of weeks on their back in a hospital room with nurses and doctors coming in, and they can't do anything. And it's almost like a forced vacation, a sabbatical, where they, they have spiritual breakthroughs in those moments. And when I first come in to pray for them, oftentimes, uh, you know, I'll assess that what they really want me to pray for is that they would miraculously be healed right now on the spot so they could jump back on their feet and go back doing all the stuff they've been doing. And I don't always pray that. I will pray for healing, of course, but I also pray that God would visit them in that time, that it really would be a holy moment. And some of you that have been in that hospital room know that God visited you there and it changed things for you. It changed your life. And the thing is, I don't want you to go to the hospital. I don't want anybody to get hurt. I don't want anybody to get sick, but I want you to meet God in that way where the stillness opens up an awareness of his presence and you start to hear him. What would he say? Now, for sure, there will be some pruning, and we're afraid of that. 
But here's the thing about God. He loves you. He's gentle. He's patient. He's specific in what he wants to work on. He's not going to bring all your problems up to the surface at once and say, fix all of this, or I will no longer accept you. That's just not who he is. He will help you every step of the way as you yield to him. That's about abiding. That's about coming to him and saying, okay, God, help me. I, I, want, I want more of your love in my life. I want to love you more. What's getting in the way of that? He might ask you to trim some activities. He might challenge you on an uh, overactive mind that doesn't make room for his word. He might, I don't know what he'll do, but you'll find out. But what I'm telling you is he's gracious and he's kind and he's gentle with you. He knows exactly what you need and he will care for you. Now, let me, let me give you two scripture verses as I come to a conclusion. One is Psalm 46.10. It says, be still and know that I am God. Just simply being still with God. And then another one that is also very common and familiar to you is from Matthew 11. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want to invite you to ask the Holy Spirit to come and give you that rest, to invite the pruning of the Father, the gardener, who who will help you bear fruit. And let me give you just, you know, there's so many specific things you could do. Turn off the radio when you're driving to work and pray. It can become a holy moment there. You can actually abide with God on your way to work when you turn down the distraction. Another thing would be Create some margin in your life, some time that is not accounted for. So if a neighbor happens to knock at the door, you're there. You're not in the middle of something where you can't just go and attend to them. If the Lord knocks on your door, you're there. You're listening. You're aware. Plan a day off that's really off. Don't fill it with activity. Don't think, I've got to do yard work. I've got to do things around the house. Actually plan a day, basically, that is prayer and playing. Pray and play. Those two things. Rejoice in God's goodness that your joy might be full. And talk to him. Invite him into it. Have a day off with the Lord and with your family. Those are some real practical ways. But I think the question that I go back to is, I'm busy, but am I fruitful? Is a question worth reflecting on as a people in this season especially. So I want to invite you to pray with me. And then we're going to go to a time of prayers of the people. Father, we we hold before you our calendars. I imagine in my hands holding out to you my schedule, all the activities. I pray, Lord, for wisdom for each one of us. How are we using our time? Would you help us, Lord, to learn to abide and prune where necessary because we really need you above all things. You're all that we need, Lord. Help us. Help us to remain in you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to kneel, and we're going to pray for the world and for the church.